0: On this week's episode of The Encrypted Economy, we're really excited to have Felix Shipkovich of Shipkovich Law on the show. We talked to Felix about his areas of specialty, money, services, businesses, licenses, and commodities, and how they apply to digital assets. Now, before we can figure out who can do what with digital assets, we actually have to figure out what the digital asset is classified as. Is it a security regulated by the SEC? Is it a commodity regulated by the CFTC? Is it virtual currency, in which case it might be regulated by 50 individual states that all require an MSB registration or license or maybe nothing? So we talk about how difficult it can be to make that determination and also what happens once you do. So, for example, if it is a virtual currency, it has to figure out what it has to do in each of the 50 states. And as you'll learn more about, that creates a lot of complexity and stifles innovation. On the other side, if the digital asset happens to be a commodity, well, that's also complex. And you have recent situations, such as with Coinbase, where something that they were trading that wasn't a commodity, due to an interpretation, now potentially could have become a commodity and they had to stop offering margin, it's complex, and things can change quickly. At any rate, I think you'll find this podcast very fascinating. And of course, if you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share, and leave me feedback. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Encrypted Economy, where we look at the business of, regulation, and security for all things encrypted, digital assets, blockchain technology, privacy, privacy, and smart contracts. Hope you'll join us while we explore these forces that are shaping the economy. This is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy. Today, we're really excited to have Felix Shipkovich of Shipkovich Law on the show. I know Felix for many years, he is an expert in matters relating to CFTC regulation, as well as money, services, businesses, licenses. I've worked with him a fair amount with regards to digital assets and mutual customers. I'm very excited to have him on the show today. I'm sure you'll find it very enlightening. Felix, thanks for joining the show. Oh, thanks for
1: having me, Eric. It's good to be here. I've known you for so many years. I feel like almost a colleague in my part of my firm. We've worked so much together on a lot of these crypto projects over the years. So
0: thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very quick to call Felix whenever any of my issues touch on CFTC or MSB. And he's very responsive. So excited to have him on. Felix, before we get into some questions about MSB and the CFTC and your roles there, let's talk a little bit about your practice And trends that you've seen. You've had your practice for quite some time and and love to hear some more about it before we start. Sure. So I'm actually rounding out the
1: 10-year anniversary. In fact, January 3rd, 2021 will be 10 years since I opened the doors to my practice, and it's been a fun 10 years. I have to tell you, we've gone through quite a fun decade of changes, starting with Dodd-Frank and now with the new Biden administration coming in. Oh, geez, there's been so many changes from so many levels, federal, state levels. But uh, a little bit about what I do, I'm um, a regulatory and corporate lawyer. I am a transactional lawyer. What I do primarily and substantially is help businesses navigate very complex regulatory issues, and that means anything from general compliance and audit issues to dealing with regulators on state and federal levels, including enforcement actions. I represent fintech companies, banks, broker-dealers, money service businesses, and also an interesting practice that I've developed in the past five to six years, which is helping out debt settlement companies and payment processors in the debt settlement space. Obviously, that's not related to the cryptocurrency space, but um, also in an interesting area that has developed in my business.
0: Interesting. And and is that how you initially got into the money services business space?
1: Originally, I got into actually working in-house. Prior to starting my practice, I was a general counsel for a global foreign exchange firm overseeing legal and compliance, both in the U.S. and abroad. And we're exploring, going back to, believe it or not, 2010, we're looking at the different ways the emergence of Bitcoin could help to develop a new product line. And so I've been in the MSB space Technically, before even 2010, we're looking to ways we can deliver foreign currency, foreign exchange and foreign currency contracts to individuals and businesses in the U.S. and worldwide. And that sort of migrated, shifted itself over to the crypto space with the emergence of Bitcoin. So probably you could say that I've been in the money service business world since 2006. So 15 years almost.
0: A lot of people who are in the money services business space have been in it. Uh, for less than 10 years at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's a field that's actually existed for decades, but it's begun quite a lot of attention with the rise of cryptocurrencies in the marketplace. So that certainly put that
0: on the map. And how have you seen the whole money services, business space, as well as the regulation of it, evolve due to cryptocurrency uh, considerations?
1: Tremendously. Virtual currencies and cryptocurrencies have existed for quite a long time. In fact, when I teach this course, I teach a course called The Policy and Business of Cryptocurrency at Hofstra Law. And uh, typically, the first two classes we spend on the creation of money, creation of medium of exchange. And believe it or not, to the surprise of many law students, virtual currencies have existed for centuries. Virtual currencies are typically viewed as currencies that are not legal tenders and the medium of exchange of virtual currencies have existed. Even in this country, going back to, oh my God, my favorite example is the Disney dollar, which was a virtual currency. If you remember going back to prior to the digitizing of the Disney dollars, you used to walk into with your kids or when I was a kid, you walked into Disney World or Disneyland and you would essentially exchange your dollar bills for Disney dollars. And that was a great revenue generator for the Disney conglomerate to sell those. So those are virtual Currencies they could use within this closed loop environment of Disney. The other one, a great example is the region of Berkshires, right? They created the Berkshire, which was a local currency that enticed people to purchase, to use for local bars, local restaurants, local stores. So the concept of virtual currency has existed for quite a long time in this country and actually worldwide. But with the creation of Bitcoin, then you have now a a virtual currency that's being purchased. There's a huge demand for this cryptocurrency. And, And how do you regulate it? The question of how do you regulate it on which level, federal or state level, or possibly even international setting came into existence. And so the question of how does it fall within the purview, within the sphere of money transmission has been around for a decade, really 2010, because the question was, were money transmission laws created for the purposes of regulating virtual currencies or cryptocurrencies, or were they created for the purposes of transmitting money that's legal tender? And I know this is a very long answer to your question, but since 2010 and onward until through this time, you have this new emergence of Different states interpreting cryptocurrency and virtual currency regulatory environment in its own way, and we can discuss that obviously during this program.
0: Yeah, and, and you raise a really good point because before diving into the MSB component, it, it's important to consider what is virtual currency. Uh, a couple of years ago, when I had a client was working on a white paper, and this is before Clayton spoke. I, I wasn't quite the buyer in the SAFT model or the Howie test that was being applied. And I was struggling with it a bit. I, I just couldn't fit it into security. So I called Felix, like I often do. And I said, Felix, I'm, I'm hating this. I don't like it. it. It ultimately led to me stripping out the ICO of anybody making any money, which wasn't very popular to a large number within my client. But I, I remember speaking to Felix and he said, why don't you use like a prepaid calling card model? And that was very intriguing. So I went back to my client and I said, why don't you use the prepaid calling model? Because prepaid calling cards are indeed, would you call them a virtual currency? It would be a virtual currency. It really depends
1: on how you structure the prepaid, whether it's a closed and open loop. If it's a closed loop, you could call it whatever you want as long as you can redeem those points, right? The redemption of those points within the the prepaid closed loop. So a very good example that I usually use is if I walk into Gap or Banana Republic, actually, they're technically owned by the same holding companies, but Gap. And if I buy a prepaid card to give to my friend, you can only use that gift card within Gap. You could use it online with Gap. You can use it in the store in Gap. But you can't go to Banana Republic, even though technically that's owned by the same holding company or the same shareholders. So that's a closed loop, right? So there's a lot of question or a lot of issues that have arisen over the years. Is well, is there a way to circumvent some of the securities regulations by essentially wrapping cryptocurrency within the prepaid system? Then there's also the open loop system, which is imagine that you can buy a gift card that you can prepay card, right? Can you redeem it within, we talked about this within the closed loop, that's not an issue. Generally, that's not an issue. You might still need to be a money service business registered with FinCEN potentially. But again, that's a very fact specific analysis. But then if you're dealing with an open loop system, then you're now ventured into the money transmission world and you have to be aware of that the stored value within the prepaid potentially may require you to register in some not all the states and you have to do that state by state analysis right that stored value analysis of whether or not that cryptocurrency may require you to be a money transmitter or get a bit license in a state like new york for instance and that is also a very fact specific analysis
0: So for the listeners, I I will give the postscript on the prepaid calling card story, which I give kudos to Felix for raising because it clicked instantly when he told me. And I was like, this is great. So we went ahead with it. The white paper definitely wasn't compliance, but I'd revised it, and some people had spoken about it. So the enforcement, OC enforcement was looking at me, as <laughs> even though I was the one who had fixed it. The long story short is, we never asked for a no action letter. And as a result, enforcement was looking at all ICOs dubiously, and we ultimately shelved it because the OC didn't get it, even though I explained, hey, this is a prepaid calling card, and they were like if you do a white paper, it's a security. (laughs) But you have to understand, this white paper is specifically designed not to be a security. Like I I consider maybe we just do a blank white paper, like nothing in it. Can we do it? (laughs) Anyway. But the postscript was the prepaid calling card. Well, a brilliant idea. Probably would have been smarter if we would have gone through the trouble of getting a no action letter before doing it, because clearly on its face, it would have met all the criteria. But because it was in a white paper, it it was like, okay, every single one of these is generally a security. So we don't care what you call it. It's probably a security too. But I still loved it. And it was still a great idea. I just, I couldn't get the enforcement to back down on it. So there we go. So now shifting gears into the MSB space, we certainly see... Uh, A lot of complexity when it comes to companies, particularly in the U.S., obviously, wanting to move into the space for Bitcoin or Ether, things that are already deemed to be currencies and and don't have those securities laws implications. But there's a lot of requirements in certain states. Don't have to do much. Maybe notice other states maybe registration. There's also the National Program for National Money Licensing, NMLS program. And then, of course, there's the myriad of states that have their own approach that require registration and have their own rules and regulations, annual filings and requirements, and it gets quite messy. Felix, what's your experience been with that?
1: So let's take care of the NMLS. NMLS is a system. It's a national system. It's a software platform that has most of the states participating in trying to gather information into sort of this single platform and then channel them to regulators where you'd like to obtain your money transmitter license. By the way, NMLS is used for a myriad of different licensing in the country outside of money transmission. But let's take a few steps back, right? You and I have worked with companies that come from abroad and interested in the U.S. space. And sadly, after they speak to us, they realize how complex the U.S. regulatory and legal environment is and and really shouldn't be that difficult. The problem is that if it's a security, case closed. You got to go the SEC route, either fall into one of the exemptions or seek no action relief. But if it's a security, it smells of security, if it passes litmus test, it goes the SEC route. Then you have everything else that may not be a security, and particularly with the introduction of this new DeFi, this new term that everybody likes to use these days. But if it's not a security, then you have to do analysis of whether it falls under money transmission laws or the laws of the CFTC. And that, unfortunately, is ignored quite a lot because the CFTC was the first federal agency between the SEC and the CFTC that says that it's a commodity. On the state level, it gets pretty convoluted and, and murky. So first you have a bucket of states that really just don't regulate crypto. They don't care to regulate crypto. They've issued no action letters or guidances saying we do not regulate cryptocurrency because we only regulate legal tender, transmission of legal tender. So then you have New York, which is an own little bucket, which is the BIT license. Then you have states that said you have to be a money transmitter because regardless of whether or not it's legal tender, you still have to be so, a money transmitter, and if you're operating an exchange or if you're doing some kind of an ICO, you're potentially involved in money transmission activities. And then you have states like Florida, which is one of my favorite states to discuss, where there's there's no definition of legal tender. And there was a case, this Espinosa case from a couple of years ago, where the state of Florida prosecuted an individual for selling Bitcoin. And actually, the person said, look, I'm not selling legal tender, therefore, I don't need to be a money transmitter. And then the appellate division in the state of Florida said, no, it doesn't matter that it's not a legal tender. Therefore, if you are in the business of selling cryptocurrencies in the state of Florida, you have to be a money transmitter. And there's a lot of opposition and a lot of disagreement in the crypto community over that decision. But look, what it really boils down to, in my opinion, is you have to figure out, is it a security? If it's yes, you've got to go the SEC route. You still should obviously consult to make sure that there's nothing on the money transmission or the CFTC side that doesn't trigger any licensing requirement. But if it's not a security, if it's truly decentralized, if you're not raising money or funds, then you've got to do this state by state analysis. And it could get quite challenging and difficult and costly. And that's one of the main deterrents for non-U.S. companies from doing business in the U.S. just because it's too much money. It's too costly. We have to go through 50 different applications. We have to get all these bonds And That's also not very easy. We have to have potentially a few key individuals here in the US.
0: The bigger question here is why don't we have a federal license to do this, right? And and That was something that Brian Brooks was trying to get down to the OCC, but that's only good for another couple of weeks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Between the FinTech charter being killed by the courts and now there's a discussion of the National Payments Charter and there was a lot of excitement over it. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I hope it happens, by the way. I think it creates a lot more jobs and create a lot more transparency in this market, but less arbitrage. See, what a lot of people don't realize is that when you have this very complex regulatory environment, it actually allows for the bigger players to come in and monetize it and, and create jobs. It's difficult for the smaller and mid-sized companies to come in. And it's just not right. I think that the economies of scales have to be equal when it comes to a global product, cryptocurrency, whatever that cryptocurrency is. It has to be fair. It, it, it can't be just limited to the bigger participants.
0: Not to take the conspiratorial attitude, but it feeds itself in a I guess, a shadow conspiracy in that the big players will always say, these markets don't have the same regulation. They can't be as safe. They need to be protected. They need the same regulation. And effectively, these are barriers to entry. So I'm in 100% agreement with you. It's oftentimes the deep pockets have the lobbying clout and people say, oh, that's very conspiratorial. But it's actually what happens. The smaller interests of lower regulation doesn't get the voice quite as much. And it's the big entities that have the ear. And, and there is a good point, but there's often a tendency to go to the default of the existing regulatory structure and try to shoehorn innovation into it versus something maybe a little more tailored in the range of what Hester Pierce is trying to do over at the SEC with some of her suggestions. Let's just hope that she is able to be successful underneath the Biden administration
1: you look at what happened to small and mid-sized financial institutions post dot frank the spirit of dot frank was obviously very positive to try to avoid curtail any type of potential meltdown by better regulating certain products and services. We're not going to go into the specifics, but I could tell you that the definition of a swap is 90-plus pages in the Federal Register. Somehow now includes certain products that really had nothing to do with the the financial meltdown that we had in 2008. And what what happened as a result of Dodd-Frank was you had tens of thousands of small and mid-sized Banks, financial institutions, credit unions, community banks, community credit unions that just couldn't support the enormous and in some ways unreasonable regulatory and capital requirements of Dodd Frank. And so what we had is the bigger players get bigger and wealthier, and their stock went up, and the smaller guys went out of business. And that's exactly what I see in the crypto space, which is arguably one of the most interesting global arenas that should allow for some level of democratic regulatory environment, not just open for the big and well-capitalized institutions, but also those that should be able to have that barrier of entry. Sure, compliance is important, the capital requirements and bonding, but make it reasonable. Can you imagine how much money you would need to have To just do business in all 50 states, if you needed to do analysis of what are the registration requirements to do business for crypto exchange in all 50 states, it's very difficult. It's costly. And it's also unfair, in my opinion, to a lot of the fintech innovators who really would provide a lot more benefit to individuals while still maintaining the proper regulatory compliance. So I just wanted to chime in because I've been a very outspoken critic of regulations that only benefit big businesses.
0: So going back to MSBs, because we never really got to the punchline, which is you have the NMLS program that Mm -hmm. is, is trying to make things a bit easier for applying across multiple states. I guess they opt in or they become members of the program with regard to their licensing regime. So you have the benefit of applying to one and touching all. How many are in the NMLS program now, like 37, 38?
1: Uh, I think that sounds about right. Usually, I have associates who handle that, but that we're, getting, we're hitting close to forty. Look, NMLS is a great platform for collecting application information. You have uh, different forms on the principles. You can upload documents: your business plan, your ML program, your financial statements, your audited financials. It's just so much easier but it's also not as easy as people think it is because first of all, each state will have its own supplemental information. So for instance, New York, right? If you apply for money transmitter license in New York, you use MLS. but I can assure you money transmitter applications that take a considerable amount of time and resources that New York will ask very specific questions that typically you wouldn't get from other states. Florida, for instance, does not use NMLS. And I actually found Florida's licensing process to be quite smooth without the NMLS. I think that the objective is to try to make this as uniform and as expedient as possible. But as we know that regulators in, in each state may have, first of all, their own questions or supplemental requests for information and also will work at their own speed, right? You could submit 30 applications in MLS, but it doesn't mean that 30 of them are going to get approved at the same time. And the process will vary from state to
0: state. So if you had a guess, do we, and I think this is a softball question, do we get a national MSB licensing regime in 2021? Probably not. 2022. Look, I'm a cautiously optimistic person that we're going to have to
1: figure out a way to regulate some of the financial products and services on a national level. We're going to have to figure this out. If we don't it's going to be I love working with regulators and sincerely, I'm not being cynical about it. I think they're people just leave me, and they're smart, they know the right questions to ask. The problem is that sometimes it takes significant amount of time longer in some states than others, and they they have different requirements and and different projections. So for instance, perform analysis in California is gonna be very detailed and super detailed versus the perform analysis in Texas, which will be detailed but not to the level. We need some uniformity. It it becomes an enormous deterrent from, as I said startups and non-U.S. businesses coming into this space and creates this unequal playing field. So there's going to be those who are listening to this podcast say, well, a couple of months ago, we had this push for some uniformity on licensing for money transmitters with 40 more states to have a single exam and some level of level playing field. Yeah, but, but the licensing and, the, and an exam is not going to create a level playing field when a typical application for a money transmitter license in the state of New York can take 12 months to 24 months, and the state of Florida will take three months. So, how does the business mitigate these discrepancies? So, you could do business in Florida or Illinois a lot quicker than you could do in New York. We need to create sufficient, reasonable levels of entry, but Why can't somebody do this on the national level? At the end of the day, we're probably one of the very few, if not the only country left where you have to look at 50 different
0: regulators to do business. And that, that's just unreasonable. Agree. To provide context for the listeners, when you're talking in terms of virtual currencies that are registering as MSBs, they're typically doing so in the spot market, meaning I'm buying and selling a cryptocurrency. I'm not doing a future on cryptocurrency. You could have an MSB and a CFTC. Regulated business doing this, but the minute you go into a Bitcoin future, that would typically fall under CFTC. And we're going to talk about it in a little bit. Even margin trading could potentially toe into the need for CFTC registration. Yeah, the general rule is that
1: if cryptocurrency trading, exchange of crypto value is done on one to one, on non leverage basis, right? That's a spot transaction, a deliverable transaction. So, for instance, if I wanted to send you one Bitcoin, right? Whatever the value is today, I think it's what hovering between 18 and 20,000, depending on the day. If I wanted to pay you for a service that you performed and pay you in Bitcoin, I would send you that full Bitcoin or fraction of a Bitcoin and you would take delivery, take possession of that Bitcoin. Or if you wanted to trade it, if you were a crypto exchange and you wanted to sell crypto, if I wanted to buy one Bitcoin as an example, I would pay dollars. If I'm based in the US, if I'm based in Europe, I'd be in euros or whatever your local currency is. So that's a one-to-one transaction. These are not leveraged transactions. And again, just to to be mindful that not every state requires you to be an MSB or money transaction It depends on the state. Anytime you get away from one-to-one and you become finance, then you get into the CFTC space. Then you get into, is this really truly a leveraged spot contract? Is it a futures contract? Is it a forward, right? And then forwards have non deliverable forwards and deliverable forwards. Then you really get into the swap space, right? Which requires under the CFTC rules to have certain type of reporting requirements to swap data repositories and certain type of contracts cannot be traded by retail. So if it's a futures contract, it can only be traded on regulated DCM designated contract market or an exchange. So for instance, one of the biggest well-known exchanges, CME, offers Bitcoin futures. And you actually have new DCM, which is essentially an exchange license that have come in the past few years and obtained that license from the CFTC to offer these Bitcoin futures products. So anytime you're dealing with a leverage crypto contract, you have to take into consideration the CFTC side. It's not just MSB anymore. Now you have to look at the CFTC rules. And if you thought MSB and money transmission gets complex, I could could assure you it gets really complex. It gets even more messier.
0: That's a good segue, actually. I wanted to talk to you because a couple of weeks ago, Coinbase announced that it was halting margin trading on its spot market. Now, Coinbase, I don't know if they have an affiliate that is CFTC. Their primary marketplace is the spot market, and they had margin trading, but there was concerns about an interpretation, I believe it goes back to March, that raised some doubt as to whether or not basically this leverage issue could force them under the registration requirement. And the only way that they could have gotten out of it is, I think it's the physical delivery requirement after 28 days. So basically, if there was a leverage transaction or a margin transaction after 28 days, whoever purchased it, even if it was on margin, they would have to basically own it or, or have physical possession of it. Otherwise, without that physical delivery, it basically they would require to be registered as a future market. So not only did Coinbase drop margin trading, but a number of other centralized exchanges also dropped margin trading following Coinbase's announcement. And that was
1: expected. And let me give a, a really brief overview of why that took place and, and how that plays into the crypto space. I already said earlier that the CFTC... Going back to September twenty fifteen, through an administrative consent order, has defined all virtual currencies to be commodities. That by itself, the Dirbit consent order citing a nineteen eighty six commodities case, it was quite interesting because really as I Always tell my law students why provide any type of guidance when you can just get a consent order and boom, you have now a legal precedent, right? The easier back door to regulating, promulgating <laughs> rules or interpretation, which is not always taught in law schools, in my opinion. The students are always taught in law schools that regulators propose rules and there's a democratic process and everybody gets to comment. No, if I'm a regulator and I don't want to go through the democratic process, I could just sue someone, get a consent order because I know that they'll probably want to settle. There you go. There's a legal precedent and everybody else has to follow it. And then I can just go and have a blitzkrieg of enforcement actions. How is this so relevant? So. Virtual currencies, according to the CFTC, according to the case of commodities, right? And we have sufficient amount of case law at this point, federal case law that confirms the same. Commodities are regulated by the CFTC. There's a definition of what constitutes a commodity. And anybody who's a commodity geek will always know that there are two exceptions to the definition of commodities. The typical ones are like oranges, pork bellies, wheat, grain, everything that you basically consume that you could think about consuming as food that's deemed to be a commodity. There are two things. The first one is onions. Onions are not commodities. And that goes back to the onion farmers and the lobby is saying that onions should not be viewed as a commodity because then they didn't want the onion futures to be manipulated on exchanges. And the other one is actually quite also interesting, box office receipts. You had what's called uh, Hollywood Stock Exchange that allowed people to trade movies and actors through these virtual contracts. And can you imagine Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt has a movie coming out and someone's going to bet against it and then essentially the box office receipts will tank before the movie would even come out and that wasn't very good for Hollywood so they've exempted that from the commodity but why the 28 days comes into existence is because you have to look at the historical perspective. Back in the day back before we had trains and, and railroads, we had horse carriages and in order to transport a commodity from one part of the country to another, it took about four weeks it took 28 days it really that's an interesting historical example because when you loaded up commodities and you got them from new york to l.a it could take four weeks and that constituted delivery so a delivery of a commodity had to take place with, within 28 days if it did not then it would turn into a futures contract. So that 28 days rule stayed in existence. Then the question, so if someone's sending me pork belly, so somebody's sending me gold, how do you take delivery? You take it, if I put down a deposit, somebody needs to send me a bar of gold and I put a deposit of $1,000, that delivery has to be made to me within 28 days. If it's not made within 28 days, that becomes essentially a futures contract, a forward contract, depends obviously on the terms. But once that bar of gold is delivered to me, I take physical possession i had the intent to buy that bar of gold and then that bar of gold was then subsequently delivered to me how do we apply it to the modern case of cryptocurrency regulation if i want to buy from a crypto exchange or crypto bd one Bitcoin, but I don't need it to be delivered to me today. I I can technically take delivery. It goes into my wallet, right? My hosted wallet at the BD. I could take delivery of it now. So if I have eighteen, let's say it's worth trading at eighteen thousand bucks, and just for the for the sake of this example, if I, if I have eighteen thousand dollars in my account, and then I want to buy one Bitcoin, I could just give that eighteen thousand dollars to the exchange or the BD, and then they give me one Bitcoin. And I see that one Bitcoin in my wallet. Let's say today it's trading at 18000 but I only have $10,000 in my account. So I need to come up with 8000 more. I need to go ask my friends and relatives. I need to find another $8,000. But I want to buy today at eighteen because I think tomorrow it's going to be at twenty. So I don't want to lose that opportunity. So what I do is I, I tell the exchange or the BD, hey, take my $10,000 and I'll come up with the rest of the money within the next 28 days. So the question arose a couple of years ago in the CFTC through a very democratic process, by the way. <laughs> I actually love the way the CFTC operates because they provide excellent examples In when they see comments. They said, look, we'd like to understand what does it really mean to take delivery of cryptocurrency? We need to understand, do you have to take delivery of the entire or can you take... Delivery of the balance. Can you only, for instance, if you don't come up with that example with the remaining eight thousand, can you just take delivery of that portion? Oh, oh, by the way, what if, for instance, the Bitcoin price change from eighteen to sixteen thousand? What if I wanted to get out of the contract and then now it becomes a speculative contract, right? Because then I never had the intent to take delivery. I wanted to take delivery, but now from eighteen to 16, Oh, why am I going to lose money? I might as well cancel the contract. So the CFTC said, look, we can't allow people to speculate on this. And Coinbase and a couple of other exchanges had this language that they would essentially close out the contract under 28 days. You know, some of them had 27 and a half days. Literally, if you pulled up the contracts, it had 27 days and 12 hours. They gave themselves a little cushion. So What they basically did is that it would, and I'm not speaking, obviously, for any specific exchanges that would either cancel out the contract, so the person never took delivery of it, or they delivered a fraction of it, whatever collateral they took. And that's not acceptable, because if the intent was really never to take delivery in full, then the intent is never to take delivery in full. So in the example of the gold bar that I explained, if it has to be delivered to me in the 28 days, and if it's not delivered to me in 28 days then the money has to be returned to me or if I can't take delivery of it, then the seller keeps that 10% or whatever that percentage of collateral they take. So you can't just play around with the word intent and delivery. You have to have actual delivery of a commodity for this not to be a futures contract. So this kind of ambiguity was closed and and that's why we saw a couple of weeks ago notices from the larger exchanges in the U.S. saying, look, we are no longer going to let you finance. We're going to basically have to take delivery of it.
0: I'm going to touch on something else that a lot of listeners may not be aware of, is the self-certification process for virtual currencies and how it differs from the SEC approach. The DCMs, or the effectively the markets for these commodities, they operate differently than securities exchanges. And self-certification is one of them. And here to tell us more about it is Felix. <laughs> The DCM, the self-certification by
1: DCM is uh, obviously quite common when a DCM wants to issue a new type of a trading commodity, essentially under the CFTC rules, certify, self-certify that you would like to do X, Y, Z. And then if the CFTC doesn't object, then you can offer that for trading. It's quite different in the respect of, I know that in the past couple of years, you've had a couple of crypto funds that wanted to get certification or blessing from the SEC. It's a much easier and simpler process on the CFTC side because you're not really dealing with individualized stocks. You're dealing with commodities. You're dealing with futures contract. You could actually have securities futures contract that are regulated in both the SEC and the CFTC, but that's, a, again, different conversation, different topic. It's just a lot easier to do that for DCM and it's a lot easier to if you wanted to offer Bitcoin futures ETF or Bitcoin futures fund to get that certified by a DCM versus getting that blessing from the SEC. But again, that's only because it's just a different beast, it's a different regulator, different rules.
0: This has been a great Podcast. Appreciate all the guidance on both the CFTC and the MSB. Where can people find out more about you and, and your law firm? Shipkovich.com. My last name is not the easy, so I'll spell S H I P
1: K E V I C H.com. You can also find uh, more information about us on uh, Money Transmitter also run DebtReliefWatch.com and CFTCLaw.com, three news affiliate sites of my firm. But feel free to reach out with any questions. Always happy to chat with you, Eric. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Felix.